The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome Mr. Eric Lee Motter. He is the Assistant Pollinator Conservation Program Director at the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Now, I heard Eric speak at the Midwestern Organic and Sustainable Education Service meeting a couple of years ago, and he spoke about insects and farming and home gardens and birds and how everything is all connected to our food system. And I knew that I needed to have Eric on as my guest. So, Eric, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. It's great to be with you today. Well, first I have to ask, how did you get involved with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation? That is a great question, and it's one that I ask myself almost daily. I wonder why my colleagues here at Xerces put up with me, but I am actually not even an entomologist. I have some graduate-level training in entomology, but my formal academic graduate work is in horticulture. And I went down that path of being particularly interested in horticultural food production, particularly commercial fruit production. And somewhere in that process, I began to make these associations with food and with fruit production specifically and the insects that support it, both pollinating insects, which I know we're going to talk more about, but also, you know, other beneficial insects that are supporting food production by eating the pests that are out there. So I went down this formal path of a background in horticulture. I got out of grad school and went into commercial crop consulting and ended up as a part-time commercial beekeeper. Really interested in this pollination side of things, worked extensively with Dr. Marla Spivak at the University of Minnesota to build sort of a, a commercial pollination business. I ended up working with the native wildflower seed industry as one of my crop consulting clients in the upper Midwest and suddenly was making these connections between agriculture and conservation and sort of professionally had one foot in each discipline and ultimately ended up doing a little bit of consulting and advising for the early Xerces Society's Pollinator Conservation Program. And then eventually a formal position here opened up and it seemed like a good fit. They seemed to be willing to tolerate me and I left my consulting work behind and totally jumped on board with what Xerces is doing. And that was six years ago and we have built, I think, probably the largest pollinator conservation program of its kind in those years since. Yeah, it's absolutely terrific. And I want to recommend that our listeners go to the Xerces.org website. And I need to spell this. It's X-E-R-C-E-S. And perhaps we should let our listeners know how the Xerces Society got its name. 
Yeah, good question. <laughs> it's not named after the the ancient Persian king, but rather we take our name from the now extinct Xerxes blue butterfly. And this was the first butterfly that we know of to go extinct here in North America, specifically due to habitat loss, to human encroachment on its natural habitat in California, and specifically in the Bay Area where the Xerxes blue butterfly was originally distributed, and it served as sort of a reminder of our core mission of protecting biodiversity broadly by focusing specifically on one of the largest, most diverse parts of our biodiversity, the invertebrate animals that serve as sort of the the base of terrestrial food systems. Yeah, and you know, in preparing for this interview, I had to go back and get a biology lesson to see what animals exactly were included in the invertebrate classification. And I found a long list that, you know, it kind of re-educated me. I needed to know this. And how on earth did I forget this? But invertebrates, bees, beetles, butterflies, crustaceans, flies, freshwater sponges, mollusks, bugs, and worms. I mean, wow, what a category to protect. Yeah, and borrowing from my boss, Scott Black, here at the Xerces Society, it is an amazingly diverse range of animals. It's everything without a backbone, excluding politicians. (laughs) That's great. Well, you know, I was recently giving a talk to some eighth graders, and I had one slide that described the food soil web. And when I was looking at your website and all of these invertebrate animals, I thought, oh, yeah, it totally connects to the food soil web. And your work also connects to the food soil web and how dependent we are on these creatures in the soil as well as our flying pollinators to eat every day. And if anybody is a science teacher or just has some kids at home and you want to enlighten them about their natural world, I love your website. And you've got a statistic there that according to the USDA, about one-third of the human diet comes from insect-pollinated plants. And oh my goodness, right? If we lose those pollinators, how will that affect the food on our plates? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we're talking about hundreds of different crop species. And I think your listeners are savvy enough that, you know, we're all making those connections, those mental connections when we think about this to things like apples or berries or pumpkins, the things that are very obviously insect pollinated that we put on our plate. But the connection between pollinators and our food system is even deeper than that. If you think about the livestock industry and the the meat and dairy that people eat, much of that is pollinator dependent as well through the production of forage seed for things like alfalfa or clover. If you think about the oils that we use in cooking like sunflower oil or safflower or canola Those are typically insect-pollinated crops as well. And that doesn't even scratch the surface, you know, of non-food connections that pollinators have to our daily lives through the pollination of fiber crops for for things like clothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is pretty remarkable. Um, I think the 
The latest statistic is that something like 85% of all plant species on Earth are insect pollinator dependent to some degree, either absolutely requiring insect pollination or just benefiting from it, producing more seed or more fruit from insect pollination. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that probably most people have heard about the colony collapse disorder with bees. And you have information on your website about the neonicotinoids, which are a class of insecticides that get inside the plants, including the pollen and the nectar, and that insecticide then affects the bees. But also that therefore also affects earthworms and lady beetles. Can you help make these connections for us? I can. And, you know, I should say just... So we're all clear here, you know, colony collapse disorder is a a specific syndrome of honeybees, and native bees are having their own issues, their own decline issues, in some cases much, much worse than even what honeybees are contending with. But colony collapse disorder specifically is still kind of this nebulous disorder where bee colonies dwindle, the populations dwindle until they can't sustain themselves anymore. And a number of different causative factors have been implicated in in colony collapse disorder, including just a lack of flowering plants for bees to eat, including diseases and parasites that honeybees have to contend with. But then you're right, neonicotinoids, this new class of synthetic nicotine-like insecticides, has been implicated pretty routinely in the overall equation. Ultimately, what we think is that probably most pollinator declines are a complex of different stress factors working together, neonicotinoids being one of those. But sticking with neonicotinoids specifically, you're right, you know, these are systemic insecticides that are applied as a seed treatment, they're applied sometimes as root drenches or foliar sprays, and they're absorbed by the plant tissue and translocated throughout the plant, meaning that the entire plant becomes dosed with some amount of this insecticide, including, in some plants, pollen and nectar, the very things that bees and other pollinators are visiting the flowers to collect. So they're bringing back this toxic food source that they're either eating directly or they're feeding to their larvae, to their offspring, and uh, potentially affecting multiple generations. Hmm. Some of the, the things that make neonicotinoids particularly concerning are the fact, number one, that these are extremely long-lived toxins, that these can persist for, we know in some cases, as, as long as six years in the environment. Another factor that makes neonicotinoids particularly concerning is that we know that they are highly mobile in soil and water, meaning that the residue of these insecticides can be absorbed by sort of loose groundwater or surface-level water in the soil and washed into adjacent wetlands or streams or aquatic ecosystems. We know that they are extremely toxic to birds in some cases. Um, So there are multiple reasons here for concern. And I think one of the game-changing issues with neonicotinoids that doesn't 
routinely get a lot of attention is that this represents a different paradigm for pest treatment altogether. Historically, we've moved towards this system that we call integrated pest management in the United States, where we first establish certain criteria for treating a pest outbreak. You know, we have to make sure the pests are actually there. We have to monitor their populations. We have to have pest damage that exceeds a certain threshold before we use an insecticide. Neonicotinoids change that paradigm by applying the insecticide in sort of a prophylactic way. We've gone from treating pest outbreaks to now dosing plants before pests are even present. And that's why neonicotinoids have been widely adopted by the ag sector because it's something that farmers can apply as sort of a a preemptive insurance policy against pest outbreaks. But, you know, that comes at a a potential environmental cost to us. I am listening to you and thinking of all of the related topics and issues in public health. So, for example, the prophylactic use of antibiotics or the loss of the biodiversity within our food and how this affects our public health and how we've seen situations where we have multiple variables causing disease, like autism, for example. Yes, we know that women that work in farm settings where they're exposed to agricultural chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, they're more likely to have children born with autism. But when you look at the research, it turns out that there are many variables that could be leading to this, to the very same outcome. So I see so many parallels between what you do with insects and bees and all kinds of invertebrates on up through the life cycle, you know, on up through human behavior and illness as well. And is that making sense? It totally makes sense. And I think a lot of those parallels are very apt parallels. If you think about the preemptive use of antibiotics in humans, for example, and how that leads to resistance among pathogenic bacteria, we actually see now the same thing developing among pest insects in navigating this world where their environment is saturated with neonicotinoids, with this one major class of insecticides, we now see pest resistance occurring more and more frequently, creating sort of super pests in crop systems. At the same time, if you think about the natural predator insects that prey upon those pests, they have a much lower life cycle. They tend to have lower fecundity, lower reproduction rates than the pest insects do. So even though we're creating sort of these super pests, at the same time, we are making conditions more and more difficult for these beneficial insects that could take on some of that role of pest management on our behalf. So those are very apt parallels. And Sticking with this issue of human health here as well, I am by no means a authoritative source of information on the potential impacts of neonicotinoids on humans, but it is worth keeping in mind that these are relatively new insecticides and they are insecticides that have been demonstrated to have very, very low 
or potentially no acute toxicity to mammals and humans included in that. However, they're so new that we don't necessarily know what the chronic long-term effects might be on us. We don't know what an environment saturated with neonicotinoids will do to us or do to our children 50 years from now, where we have ongoing low-level exposure to these things. So I think the connections between human health and the way we manage human health and human pathogens and the way we're managing insecticides are not only parallel, but, you know, at sort of their worst, they have the potential for colliding. Mm -hmm. And I think we would be foolish to think that we could do something in that food soil web that would affect part of it, but not all of it eventually. But anyway, I I need to take one little quick break to remind everyone that we are speaking with Eric Lee Motter. He is the Assistant Pollinator Conservation Program Director at the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. He works worldwide with farmers and the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service to enhance functional biodiversity in agricultural lands. He has worked as a farm educator, a commercial beekeeper, and a crop consultant for the native seed industry. And we are delighted to have him with us today. Eric, I want to talk a little bit about this perception in the public that all bugs are bad. And believe it or not, I actually found a little children's game that promoted using sprays to kill the bugs in a garden. And when I heard you speak at the Midwestern Organic and Sustainable Education Service meeting, what really I took home from that was that if we just provide lots of biodiverse native habitat, we can promote having a more healthy or a robust population of what we might call good bugs that will naturally take care of the insects that would do harm. Did I hear that correctly? You absolutely did, and the equation is absolutely right. Um, Habitat, the, the abundance of natural habitat, the diversity of that natural habitat has a direct reflection in the insect populations and the animal populations that you will find associated with it. The more diverse, the the more abundant that habitat is, the more it's integrated into crop systems, the more of these diverse beneficial species that we have in either farm settings or garden settings. We have historically as a species, as the human species, we have ignored the fact that farms are ecosystems and that the same rules that govern natural ecosystems also govern farms. Um, One of those simple rules is that a, a system out of balance is always going to seek stability. So if you have for example, an ecosystem that consists of only one plant species, which if you think about you know, a, a conventional cornfield in central Iowa, that is in essence what we have. The only animal diversity that will be attracted to that monoculture ecosystem is the insect populations that prey upon that one plant. 
when you start to add diversity into the system, you start to add native wildflowers or native grasses. And if you start to integrate prairie plants back into the farm, into field borders, or you start to integrate flowering hedgerows around farms and gardens, then you attract some of these beneficial species that have more complicated types of life cycles. If you think about lady beetles, for example, they are, in many cases, feeding supplementary, uh, feeding on the supplementary diet of pollen and nectar if prey insects aren't available. So by adding, you know, a few wildflowers adjacent to your garden, then you've created this food source, this alternative food source that they can fall back on when there aren't necessarily pests in your garden. When you grow more than one type of crop next to, you know, side by side in a a diverse polyculture food system, then you don't necessarily build up these enormous peak populations of any one kind of pest. You may have smaller populations of more diverse pests, but you're also attracting a more diverse suite of different beneficial insects that can really mitigate the impact of those pests on you. And tying that back to to food systems specifically, I mean, isn't that the model for what we should be putting on our plate anyway? Shouldn't we be trying to have this diverse range of different options in our diet, this diverse set of foods that can provide different nutrients and micronutrients rather than, you know, a monoculture system that only provides that one thing. And typically those monoculture systems are really only providing sort of basic carbohydrates with fairly low nutritional value. Exactly. Yeah. Yet another parallel. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're thinking and speaking like an ecologist and understanding how different systems are all connected. And I don't know about you, and maybe it, maybe it's just me, but when I drive through farmland that is so obviously a monoculture, or maybe it's soy and corn, you, know, you get that soy and corn rotation, especially in the Midwest, I just think, wow, we are just so open to collapse here. And if only we had a bit more diversity, could we just go back? You know, I always, I like to ask farmers, what was it like 20, 30, 40 years ago? And every farmer tells me that generations ago, we had more biodiversity on the farm. And I think it was a much more resilient and talk about food security, a more secure environment where, you know, if one crop failed, you had something else. Or as you mentioned, you know, you had these different insect populations that kept one another in check. And sometimes I I get really worried about that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we're, you know, you and I, as we're, we're talking about this, we're sort of bouncing back and forth between the, the ecosystem functions and the human side of the equation and i think this is this is another example of that yeah historically farms had more biodiversity they had more crop diversity they also had um i think a a more human scale they had a scale that fostered local communities 
I'm from North Dakota originally, and throughout my childhood exposure to um, the farms around me in North Dakota, it was really interesting to observe this movement away from the land, this this um, sort of wholesale abandon of small farming systems and this consolidation of larger and larger farming units by fewer and fewer people. And as a kid, even, I remember one of the, you know, one of those human impacts was sort of a, a pretty lonely childhood, not having, you know, a local grange, not having local institutions that were supported by a robust and populous farm community. And so, yeah, there are the, there continue to be these parallels. No matter how I think we look at it through which side of the prism, there are these parallels between humans and the human food systems and insects and ecosystems. That said, it is really heartening to look around now and to see this um, sort of a reverse movement, to see people moving back into farming as a vocation, as a uh, a true life commitment. And we have spinning full circle and, and thinking about the neonicotinoids or thinking about monoculture-type farming. We're presented with this as though it's the only option. And we see a growing movement of farmers who are resoundingly saying, no, that is not the only option. There are ways of managing pests besides conventional insecticides. There are ways of farming besides conventional monoculture row crop farming. And those are the farmers that, you know, I'm, I work really, really closely with. I do work with some really huge, um, more conventional growers who I think are on the path towards some great things as well. But I think that we need to be vigilant against these arguments that, you know, this is the way to do this, that this sort of mass technological approach is serving us because there are a multitude of examples out there, real-world examples that you can see in any part of the country of people who have found a different way of doing things. And it's a way that supports local food systems, and it's a a way that is also supporting local biodiversity. I want to make sure our listeners know to go to your website, and that's xerces.org, that's X-E-R-C-E-S.org, because we didn't have a chance to talk about this, but I did want to touch on the issue of how the farm bill affects pollinators and how... I, like you, am very heartened to see this bursting out of new young farmers. I think it's our way of saving ourselves, actually. But they have to have farm policies in place to make sure that they can farm in a way that is sound from an agroecological standpoint. Eric, we're out of time, and I just want to... Thank you so much for being my guest. I want to make sure that our listeners not only know about the Xerces.org site, but also about your terrific blog site, and that's agroecologynews.tumblr.com. And I'll make sure that that website is 
available online. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank you, Eric Motter, again for being my guest, the Assistant Pollinator Conservation Program Director at the Xerces Society. And I do want to put a plug in for your books. You are the author of Attracting Native Pollinators and the soon-to-be-released Farming with Beneficial Insects, Strategies for Ecological Pest Management. Eric, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Melinda. 